Every now and again, a problem comes along that not only makes you think, but also has profound implications. And one of those problems is known as the all-for-all problem. And it's beautifully simple to state. Imagine you have a bar that comfortably seats 60 people. But every week, 100 people have to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to go to the bar on a given night. Now, if too many people go, then the bar's too crowded and people have a miserable night. But if too few people go, then that's a missed opportunity to go out. So what the all-for-all problem really does is it asks us to consider how people make the decision as to whether or not they go out that night. In other words, it asks how do people predict how crowded the bar will be? And to help us through this problem, we're joined again by its inventor, W. Brian Arthur, external professor at the Santa Fe Institute and researcher at Palo Alto Research Center, formerly Xerox Park. And the thing I love about the all for all problem is that it's not just the story of a bar. It's a problem that gives us incredible insight into how the economy works. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show, and welcome back, W. Brian Arthur, to the show as well. Thank you, Sean. I'm delighted to be back again. Now, the last time we had a very long chat about your story and your journey from standard economics to complexity economics. Today, we're going to talk about a very specific problem you worked on, known as the Al-Faral problem. The background to this was that in the early 90s, I was at the Santa Fe Institute and I noticed talking to physicists that they had a habit of coming up with what they called toy models. These were little models maybe of, oh, magnetism or something in physics that were incredibly simple to state. But then the implications of these models were very rich. And often they led to indeterminate outcomes and There might be debates for years about a simple model. Didn't need to represent anything terribly realistic in real nature, but these are just little quirky things that made you think. And at the time, in the early 1990s, I had this habit of going to a bar in Santa Fe. It had Irish music, which appealed to me. In fact, there's a guy called Jerry Carty from Galway who used to sing Irish songs. On a Thursday night, El Farol in Spanish, I gather, means the lighthouse or the lantern. And it had been there on Canyon Road in Santa Fe for quite a long time. Very nice place. But it was small and crowded and in those days maybe a bit smoky as well. And I began to wonder as I went there weekly, this was once a week, they had Irish music, and I thought, how do people decide to show up here? And I realized that this was a forecasting problem because 
if you thought it was going to be crowded, you'd probably not go. It wasn't pleasant. There was nowhere to sit. If it wasn't crowded, you would think, oh, yeah, it's going to be fun. I can sit down and have a drink or two and really enjoy this. But I realized that posed a very strange problem in economics. Economists like to have analyses or models of people in the economy, not just acting, but people predicting. So how do people predict what prices might be tomorrow or next month on the stock market? And if they think prices are going to go up, they will buy in. If they think they're going to go down, they might want to sell. So economics have taken a very, very keen interest in forecasting or prediction. The jargon word in economics is expectations. That's the fancier word for forecasts. I might (laughs) slip into that as I go. Anyway, I began to realize that if you sort of boxed this problem in and made it simple, I was trying to think of how this forecasting and showing up at L for All might work. And I realized that, say, if you had 100 people who might want to come to El Farol on a Thursday night, they all might all sit in their houses over dinner and try to figure out is it going to be crowded or not. And so I laid down a rule in my mental model of this, that if someone forecasted that more than 60 people would come, they would not want to come. If they thought fewer than 60 people would come, it would be great fun and comfortable and they would show up. And then I realized that if we did a sort of economics stunt on this, a standard way of approach, that standard way of approach would say everybody's identical, at least in the way they think, and they would all use an identical forecasting model. At the time, I envision this as a little plastic thing that sat on your mantelpiece or something. So let's say everybody's identical. This wasn't what I did in the long run, but the standard approach is that everybody's identical. They glance at their forecasting model and it says 77. So they think, oh, 77 people are going to show up. I don't think I'm going to go. That's more than 60, so I'm just going to stay home. But everybody's identical. So nobody goes. They're all seeing 77 and they all stay at home. And that forecast of a fairly high number showing up gets negated by nobody showing up. I began to realize the whole situation was diabolical because you couldn't deduce anything. If you acted as usual in economics, assumed everybody was just like you, and everybody acted on a forecasting number larger than 60, that number would be negated and nobody would go. If they all thought 24 would go, everybody would go. (laughs) And so that forecast would look stupid. So what I had stumbled upon and what became a toy model for me was this L for all situation. If many people are expecting a lot of people to come, then nobody will come. And I began to wonder then, how would you model that? There isn't a logical solution was the first thing I started to realize because 
if there was a logical solution, and you assume that people are infinitely logical and smart, which is standard in economics, they'd all use that solution. But if everybody converged on, say, this week, a prediction that 23 would come, then they would all come. So any logical deductive solution gets negated. And that's what I thought was delicious about this problem, that if there is a logical solution, it will do itself in. And that's when you move to an inductive rather than deductive solution to the problem. I think what's interesting about this story, economics was standardized on saying, you know, people are perfectly logical. No economist believes that, but it was a, it was a pretty good assumption to solve problems. And everybody's identical. And suddenly I was confronted by a situation that if that were true, that would self-negate. There can be no such solution that lasts. So what you're saying is that rather than, well, the economist would say there's one solution, in other words, so there's one way of predicting and everyone's the same. That, so if everyone's the same, there has to be one way of predicting. But what you did was you said, now let's assume that everyone, these 100 people in our model are our 100 agents, that they have a variety of predictive mechanisms available to them to choose from. And some of them may say, if last week was busy, then I'm going to assume this week's not busy. That could be their rule. But if they've said last week was busy, well, this week will be busy as well. That could be another rule. And you took these 100 agents and you created a whole bunch of potential rules they could use for prediction like we just talked about. Tell us a little bit about that model and how that model ran and you built it. Around 1992, I started to think harder about all of this and I was learning to program at the time in the language C. This is 30 years ago. And so I programmed the situation and I had 100 would-be bar goers and I concocted about 20 or 30 plausible rules. And then, like an alphabet soup of predictors, if you've got 20, 30, 40 people the last three weeks, maybe 50 would come. So you can cook up all sorts of rules simply because there isn't a deductive solution. And so I arbitrarily cooked up about 20 like an alphabet soup, and then I ladled out randomly half a dozen of these to each agent. So each agent had several, let's say, half a dozen different little forecasting machines, and they would watch and keep count of which ones were accurate, and they would act upon the most accurate ones. So you give them memory, you let them know the last two weeks attendance. So they, you let them know that. And then they were able to say, well, if I pick a predictive model, which will say that next week is not going to be busy. And then when we get to next week, when they go and it was busy, then they know that that rule wasn't that good for them on this, That's right. on this opportunity. It wasn't a good predictive tool. Whereas if they say, well, next week will not be busy and they go and it's not busy, then that rule... They learn that that rule, this is a good rule, I'm going to try and use it again, regardless of the simplicity or the complexity of the rule itself. Right. In fact, all I was doing was applying the kind of 
learning methods that John Holland had pioneered that I was talking about in the last session. You come up with arbitrary rules. And in this very simple case, you're just learning which rules work better over time. But again, the tricky thing about this is there isn't a rule that works wonderfully each time. If there were, everybody would converge on that rule and would be predicting pretty much the same thing each time. And if that wonderful rule that was super successful predicted 46, then people would learn that 46 was a good outcome or that machine was a good outcome. Then many people would come predicting 46 and that would start to negate that rule. So if you keep working through the logic, sounds a bit gobbledygooked here, but the logic was always that if people start to use the same thing and expect the same thing, their behavior will negate. If people are expecting a lot of people to come, they won't go. That's kind of what was the base mechanism of all of this. Anyway, I ladled out a bunch of rules. People would be bar goers, on average, had quite different rules. And I didn't have anything fancy. I just thought I'll use behavioral rules that people might. And lo and behold, and I programmed this, I pressed the return button to see what would happen, how many people would show up each week. And I thought this will be chaotic, meaning it won't have a predictable pattern behind it. If it did, people would quickly learn that pattern. And that turned out to be correct. But what amazed me was it settled down to an average of the comfort level. The comfort level here was beyond 60, you don't want to be there, below 60, it's fun. And lo and behold, my little toy model and my computer settled down to uh, around 60, varying. And I puzzled at that for a while. Then I realized that if it settled down, say, to 40, then on average, 40 people will be showing up. And on average, little predictors that forecast close to 40 would be accurate. And that would mean that uh, on average, people would be expecting 40 people would come and there'd be too many people coming and that would negate 40. This sort of seems a bit of a mind stretcher, but it's not really. It's just that anything that consistently appears as a predictable outcome quickly gets negated because people want to do the opposite. If you predict low, you'll go. If you predict high, you don't want to go. Just to summarize it, you've got a model with 100 agents. You throw in 20 simple rules based on the attendance from the previous weeks. And based on the individual agent's success or failure with the use of those rules in terms of prediction, they either keep those rules or discard those rules. And what you get is extraordinary. You get, on average, 60 people there a week. But the decision-making processes that those 60 people are using are potentially all really different. And 
if those agents were real and they met each other and they said, oh, well, this is how I work out whether I'm going L for L or not. I, <laughs> I look at the last two weeks and if they're high numbers, I, I won't go. But if they're low numbers, I will go. Someone else may say, no, I do that every other week. And the point that I find quite mind-blowing from this, Brian, is that while those rules are all different, they're all right when we put them together because the emergent behavior or the overall behavior that comes out of all these agents using these alphabet soup, as you say, of rules gives the right answer. It gives, a, you know, on average, a bar with 60 people that's happy. And as you said, that if they were sitting around 40, well, the rules that made the other people stay at home once they figure out, well, this is there's only 40, there's room for another 20 people, they start discarding those rules and actually picking up rules. And that's what drags you back up to the 60, isn't it? That they're picking the optimal rules. Well, they're picking rules that have worked because there's no optimal rule. There's no well-defined problem here. I want to point out some properties of this strange problem. First of all, it's, the problem's incredibly easy to state. 100 people are trying to forecast whether they should show up at L for all once a week. They will not go if, they think if their forecast tells them that more than 60 will be there. They will go if, if they think fewer than 60 will be there. What's going to happen? That's the problem. You quickly find out the deductive rationality doesn't work. You find out that there's a logical paradox if there were a solution that predicted correctly, it would self-negate. Mm -hmm. If it thought many people would come, nobody would come. So logical analysis doesn't work. Having everybody identical doesn't work. Looking for a mathematical or logical solution doesn't work. And therefore, the problem is what you say in mathematics, you just said it's indeterminate. You fundamentally just can't write an equation for it. You just can't write an equation that's real. No. So this was a shocker. Moreover, if you start to think behaviorally, behaviorally, you might say, okay, there's 99 other people trying to do this. I can get an edge by trying to conceptually figure how they all might think. So let's say I'm very smart and I start to become convinced that the 99 other people are just following a rule, says so it'll be similar to last week. But then if such a rule emerges, it would be self-negating and so on. The problem formally in formal economics or formal logic, you would say, is one of fundamental uncertainty. You don't simply know what other people are going to do, because if you did, and if everybody did have a good idea of who's doing what, then that would quickly self-negate. Another thing I want to point out, so it breaks all these rules. Logic doesn't work. The problem itself is not logically well-defined or determinate how people would act. And yet it arrives very, very quickly at a balanced equilibrium around the comfort level and when you think about that, you realize, no, it's not coming out at the comfort level where the number showing up every week is identical or 61 or maybe next two weeks, 58, and then another week, 61. 
if there were such a thing, that would also self-negate. So that outcome is a bit, uh, struck me, it was quite organic. Also, it showed something that I began to realize was that the situation wasn't so much logical, it was ecological. It's not trying to forecast the truth. You don't know the truth. The actual forecast that it's trying to get to beforehand is determined by what other people are forecasting. So I began to think that each little forecasting rule was like a species trying to do well in an ecology of other little forecasting species. What you're saying there is you're saying you can pick a forecasting strategy, but the success of that forecasting strategy is not down to or a factor of that forecasting strategy alone. It's a factor of that forecasting strategy and what other people's forecasting strategy is doing at the time. And that's where the competition is coming from. I read, I read a quote here that you have got in your paper that I absolutely love about humans and inductive reasoning. And you say, we are superb at seeing or recognizing or matching patterns, behaviors that confer obvious evolutionary benefits. In problems of complication then, like the one we're talking about, we look for patterns and we simplify the problem by using those to construct temporary internal models or hypotheses or schemata to work with. We carry out local deductions based on our current hypotheses. This is the little models you're talking about. And we act on them. And as feedback from the environment comes in, we may strengthen or weaken our beliefs in our current hypothesis, discarding some when they cease to perform and replacing them as needed with new ones. I think the key, which is very profound here, is that we have groups of agents with no central controller who are self-organizing with one another, mutually accommodating one another, essentially using a range of different strategies and models to predict how full the bar is going to be. And they're really good at it. <laughs> they're really good at getting the right answer. As you pointed out to me before when we spoke, the point isn't that you're predicting how full the bar is going to be. That's not the key outcome from this overall problem is that it tells us that when we've we've got a you know a target that makes us comfortable, that we, without a central controller, can self-organize using different strategies to actually hit the target. And that that's not magic. It's simply a, a part of a complex system. And of course, that's what the economy is all about, really. That's certainly what the stock market's all about. I might invest today and be using some brilliant strategy for investing. But what does brilliant mean? Anybody who's in the market as a professional knows that they're not trying to predict the outcome of something that's super logical. Their tomorrow's price depends on what other people are going to predict. So as Ken said, the outcome depends on what other people think the outcome's going to be. And if you have some good idea of that, you can make money. We talk about the smart money in, in the market. Those are people who've got a good idea of what other people might do. 
So I think this particular toy model got at how much of the economy works. You're always trying to predict, but you're trying to predict something that depends on how other people are trying to predict. And there isn't a final perfect answer to that. And this was the first time really anyone had come up with this sort of model of the market, so to speak, even though it wasn't the model of the market. But it was uh, the first time someone showed that these different strategies could produce order, so to speak. In, in other words, these different strategies could be Adam Smith's invisible hand. That's right. Adam Smith never said problems in economics are well-defined. He lived a bit too early. In fact, really smart economists didn't say that it was because everybody coordinated on the optimal solution. In this case, there is no optimal solution because there isn't a logical solution. But yet people do find their way to coordinating pretty well. It's like traffic. You don't know what the other drivers are going to do, but you can predict you can roughly predict that if there's a gap in the traffic, somebody will move into it. It's this kind of order emerging. I didn't theoretically come on all of this just by thinking about it. I had worked in 1991 in the analytical division of Citibank in Hong Kong. Citibank actually sent me over there. And I sat around with the foreign exchange traders investors in the Citibank at 3 a.m. and watched how they worked. And I noticed none of this was deduction. You didn't know, let's say, how the dollar was going to move against the yen or something. What they were doing was induction. They'd be sitting there, the market would move a bit, and then somebody would say, oh, looks like the Chinese central bank has just come in. And somebody else would say, yeah, and the New Zealand banks are doing such and such. So what they were doing was trying to notice small changes in behavior, small changes in the situation, do a little bit of inference from there. Well, the Chinese come in, they're, they're likely to shift the market in this direction or that direction. And then they'd make their bets accordingly. And basically, I lifted that situation and applied that to L for all. There's another thing I want to mention when all of this <laughs> came out. I, I wrote up this L for all problem in 1994, brought it out in the American Economic Review, which is arguably the top journal in economics. And there was a massive silence. I don't know, it wasn't deliberately that people were ignoring it or refusing. Nobody knew what to make of that. Mm -hmm. A bit like increasing returns. Nobody had seen anything like it. And there was one person, however, who picked this up and made it famous. Certainly not me. There was a physicist at Santa Fe Institute, a youngish guy called Per Back, B-A-K, famous for cooking up self-organized criticality. (laughs) And that's a kind of don't ask, but you can easily Google that and find out how that worked. That's a whole episode in itself, isn't it? Yes. Yes, 
Herr Bach was very much, uh, I say was, he's since died, tragically, prematurely. But um, Per was a super, super bright guy. Per read the L for All paper. He was in my group, and I handed this paper to him. He read it, and he must have had one of these holy shit moments because Per started, this was 1994, he read the paper, didn't say much to me about it, and before I knew it, he had faxed it. There was no email in those days to speak of, and he faxed it to everybody he knew in physics. They got it. It turns out that that toy problem of L for all gives you a fantastic feeling about an economy. Every agent's trying to do something within a situation created by other agents, but you don't know how they're going to react. So you didn't need to know a lot about the economy or stock markets or whatever intergenerational transfers and the fancy stuff we study in economics. If you're a physicist, you could read this and think, got it. You know, it's a whatever four or five page paper and you say, oh, got it. That's how economics works. A lot of people said that to me subsequently. Somebody who was trained in physics came up to me and said, you know, I never really understood economics till I read that paper. And now I've got it, the L for all thing. So suddenly I was famous in physics. People said, wow, the L for all problem and that problem then achieved what <laughs> other toy problems had achieved in <laughs> physics. And I don't want to exaggerate here. Meanwhile, in economics, it languished, not because economists aren't that smart. I think, of course, they are. It languished because there was no context to put that in. That's changed. And there's now a few hundred papers on that. And Glad to say the that L for all model has been <laughs> generalized in what's called the minority game problem, not by me, but by a couple of ex-physicists, I think. So there's books on this. For me, actually, one of the very nice things was that I was brought down to L for all, the bar, and given free beer. <laughs> so. High praise indeed. <laughs> well, I don't think they made a fortune out of this, but they told me that when people arrived to visit the Santa Fe Institute, as often as not, they would want to see this bar, the bar. <laughs> that they'd read about. <laughs> I hope they weren't disappointed. <laughs> I have seen photos online of people getting selfies outside the Alpha of our, all from the complexity space, I have to say. <laughs> But it's quite common. <laughs> yeah, other people haven't heard of it. Uh, I can say this, it's quite an upscale restaurant. It's not just a bar. For a long time, I've been at the Santa Fe Institute, as I said, since 1987, on and off. And in the early days, we didn't use the word complexity. We thought a lot about self-organizing systems, like, say, Parabach's system. We didn't really think much about complexity. And then over several years, people have asked me, they ask everybody at Santa Fe sooner or later, 
how would you define complexity? My serious definition of that is, I tend to say it's systems with many elements. There might be people, if it's economics, it might be people. My other flippant definition of complexity, maybe I told you this, but audiences either get this or they don't. You'll see why in a moment. Uh, Professor Arthur, can you, what do you mean by complexity? I remember a woman in her 50s asking me that at a large lecture. I said, well, have you ever had teenage children? Because all the elements of teenage, I don't know if you have. I do, I have one. (laughs) I had four at one stage and, you know, all the elements are interacting. You can't predict what's going to come out. Uh, You can't control anything. There's no problem to which you can find a solution. And it just keeps going on and on and changing. Coming back to L for All, I think that the L for All problem, I don't want to exaggerate its importance at all, but the L for All problem, I realized a few years later, was... I think an indicator of what economics may look like in the future, that problems are not necessarily models, don't give you a well-defined logical situation. We're not assuming that all the people in the model, the players, are the same. We're not assuming they know that other people are the same. There may be no overall solution And if there is a solution, an L for all, that you could predict and people converge on it, it would quickly self-negate, so there can be no such solution. In that sense, economics is changing. I don't know what will be the fate. This is my own opinion. I don't know what's going to be the fate of complexity economics or, or this sort of economics. But I will say this fairly strongly. And that is that all the sciences are giving up their ideas of perfect rationality, perfect order, perfect logic, and that many things you're dealing with are identical. We have to make those assumptions to make science work. But we're now entering a period in physics and in mathematics and in other fields, including economics, where it's starting to be okay to say none of the above hold. The reason we can do that and get away with it is we all have computers. So you can't describe easily on pencil and paper, yellow paper, legal pads, whatever we, we use, you can't describe it if you say I have, 100 different agents, I'm going to put them in L for all. I can write equations even for their individual little predictors. And I am going to work out the solution because there's too much going on. But once you have a computer, the computer can track that. So I don't think it is a coincidence that complexity, the idea of looking at multiple elements creating the situation those multiple elements react to. It's not a coincidence that this became a serious object of study 
roughly at the time when we got computers. I think there were really smart people 100 years ago, Poincaré and others, who would have realized that, but they didn't have computers, so you can't track that. So in that sense, then, complexity is not really the cause of something in science. It's more the outcome. If we get computers, we can take multiple elements seriously. We can assume they're different. We can track them. They don't have to have some perfectly logical, unique answer. They can do quite different things. And then under those circumstances, quite often you see phenomena appear, like the ones I mentioned last time in the stock market. Well, Brian, thank you very much for coming on the show again to talk about the all for all problem. And thank you. And thanks for the great questions. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.